Take a network break. Uh, my dog woke me up at 3.30 this morning, so I have had plenty of time to bake some virtual donuts. So hand them around as we uh, get through the latest uh, crop of news. We're uh, going to be talking about a new chip from Fortinet, new features from Extreme Networks, and a new to sanctions against hackers, financial results, and more IT news. Uh, stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Byte. We're going to talk with Nokia about a new automation feature called Event Handler in its SR Linux network OS. Event Handler lets you automatically run scripts to fix problems when an event occurs. Uh, and last but not least, if you're interested in more Packet Pusher stuff, sign up for our Human Infrastructure Newsletter. It's a weekly digest of the best technical blogs from around the web, plus new products, commentary, essays, and more. It's free to sign up at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. All right, let's dive into the news. Fortinet has announced a new chip, the SP5. It's uh, going to power its entry-level firewall appliances. Fortinet says the chip uses 88% less power than a typical CPU while providing firewall throughput of up to 40 gigabits per second and 37 gigabits per second of IPsec VPN. Uh, if you don't know, Fortinet's been making its own ASICs since day one, uh, so this latest release continues in that line. Yeah, Fortinet makes three families of what they call SPUs, which are security processing units. They actually make a network processor, a content processor, and a security processing unit. And these are got respective levels of advancement. Some are at seven, nine, and five. The SP5 is a security processing unit, which consolidates network and content processing, application identifying, steering, and network overlay performance. So out of the family of three, this is the one focused on security stuff. The rest of them are network processors, which are your Ethernet switches, and then content processors, which are offloads from the CPU for resource intensive. So very sort of thing. The interesting thing here, I think, is that Fortinet is still doubling down on a hardware strategy in the face of everybody else going software. So yesterday we're moving on, right? It's, it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, it's it's in their DNA. They're, they're, they were founded on making their own ASICs. They continue to think they're going to extract value that way, give them a competitive push against folks trying to optimize uh, traditional CPUs or just off-the-shelf ASICs. So, uh, and we'll talk mm. about their financial results later in the show. And <laughs> if the financial results mean anything about this uh, ASIC yeah. strategy, Strategy, it seems to be paying off. Yeah, Fortinet's always been at the higher end of the performance scale. Um, the back, you know, in the early days, they were able to do very, very high performance, but not the level of inspection or functionality in the from firewalls. But that's been fixed over the years, and I think you know, with these different chipsets, one doing fast, and then this accelerated security inspection gives them the ability. This one's talking about 2.8 gigabits per second of SSL inspection, 2.8 gigabits per second of threat detection, 37 gigabits of IPsec VPN. So that's pretty fast and basic firewalling at 14 gigabits per second. And of course, this is all leading into claims of power savings and so forth. Of course, every time you get a faster chip, you get claims of power saving because instead of having one, two, three, four firewalls, now you've just got one big one, which is fine. But I still wonder what's going to happen in the cloud. Do they have a, a uh, and also in the context of DPUs, did they say anything about that? Well, I did ask them about DPUs because that is all the rage of the data processing units. Uh, and Fortinet said, uh, no, we're not going to put our software on DPUs um, because they say they prefer to control their own destiny by optimizing their software onto hardware they control. So yeah, their answer at the moment is no. Yeah, well, they would say that just as they're announcing a brand new chip. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, so that that's what they would say. I think that they'll, uh, at this point in time, while we talk a lot about DPUs because we're peering into the future mm -hmm. and trying to anticipate what's coming, see what's yeah. coming down, the, yeah, survey the landscape and sort of evaluate whether the landscape's changing. I, I think even if DPUs became a thing next year, which is highly unlikely, by the way, it's very much a multi-year thing, in my opinion, they've already got the hardware. They could produce their own DPU and say, here you go, put that in your server and you've got a Fortinet or... You know, the software is already ready to run on silicon. So it's not like 
uh, say a lot of firewall vendors don't use coprocessors. They just use whatever Intel or AMD CPU can they can find and use whatever's right. on board. And they have a different, you know, their internal firewall architecture needs to evolve a lot to make the most of that. So I think there's a whole lot of stuff happening in this place. I don't think they're badly placed. Yeah, I will note the one crack in that argument about they want to control their hardware destiny is that they do have a virtual instance of their firewall that runs on uh, AWS uh, in, in the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's running on a specific uh, AWS uh, AWS's own hardware, which is a, an ARM processor. So they have ported to third-party hardware, which means I think down the line, if DPUs take off and if they see competitors moving into that real estate, I assume they have a rationale to follow. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I would think their code's already sort of ready to run on custom assets. Right. Whereas if, if your firewall vendor's just running code on a generic Intel motherboard, they might have some an uphill battle there to get to move quickly, so they might feel... But of course, when they're talking about the hardware announcement for this ASIC, they're not going to talk about something that's years off in the future. I guess they don't want yeah. to take away attention from the SP5, yeah. Mm. One thing I did notice is that um, Fortinet didn't build these chips themselves. They acquired some parts of these, at least, over the cycle. Um, in 2009, Fortinet acquired the intellectual property and other assets of Woven Systems, an Ethernet mm -hmm. switching company. Um, and But they do um, have developed this, the ASICs over time. My understanding is very early in the, in the company setup, they did acquire some ASICs, and that's been a key part of their value prop ever since. Yeah. All right, links in the show notes. If you want to get more details, we'll move on. Uh, Extreme Networks is extending its campus and data center fabric to remote and branch locations. The goal is to make it easier to bring fabric benefits like faster device provisioning and network segmentation to remote locations. Uh, the company is also tying in its SD-WAN to the fabric to simplify WAN connections back to headquarters or data center applications and services. Uh, you may remember Extreme acquired its SD-WAN capabilities when it bought Ipanema in 2021. Yeah, two two years feels a little bit long. Does it do you, two years to bring out to respin this into a new product? It feels like it took them a long time. Well, they've had a lot of acquisitions and they're doing a lot of integration, so I think their their integration mm. list is pretty long. Yeah. Anyway, I think uh, this is probably a good move. I think the um, the main feature here is, of course, we've got one too. Yeah. So Extreme now has an SD WAN. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the main thing here is the unification of the campus and the WAN. Extreme has never really been a part of the WAN. They've mainly focused on Ethernet switching in the branch, but mostly in the campus, especially in the education markets. So this shift to them saying, we've now got an SD-WAN through the Ipanema acquisition, and they were, all, were doing the SD-WAN separately, you know, with the SASE and the Zero Trust Network Access. Mm -hmm. But I think the key here is that they're mapping the campus and the WAN together. The campus is running probably something along the lines of shortest path bridging underneath the orchestration engine. Nobody really cares what the underlay is in the in the campus network, whether it's LISP or EVPN or, you know, uh, shortest path bridging doesn't really matter. But the secret here is that they're actually mapping the campus WAN into the WAN, which I think is is new. I haven't seen that too often yet. Yeah, I haven't seen that too often either. And they are relying on, I think, ISIS uh, as the routing protocol and using VXLAN uh, for the encapsulation uh, so that VXLAN encapsulation mm -hmm. carries out to a switch in the remote location, but then they can also tunnel an IPsec connection from the SD-WAN back to your uh, campus or whatever yeah. else you need to connect to. But you're not like a, a Cisco SD-WAN where you're fiddling around with routing protocols manually. This is all done orchestrated from it's, the cloud. Yes, so that's the intent. The fact that it runs ISIS is not something that you right. Need to they, they're about. trying to abstract as as a much as much away from the operator as they can yeah. uh, in this scenario. And again, and also what they've also done is brought that SD-WAN management console into their overall cloud management console again to make it uh, easier to operate. 
and the, what this does is, of course, it means that the branch networks and the WAN and the campus networks all start to have the same zero trust. One of the things that we're, I'm seeing when I talk to people is they're saying, well, I've got my branches now. They've got zero trust from the SASE, mm-hmm. but my campuses are not trusted. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I haven't got the same security. I haven't got the same policies in the, main, in the head office as I have in a right. branch. And that's not that's not what we want. And so this idea of stitching campuses and WANs together into a unified networking capability, I think, is going to be something we'll see more of in the next years as, you know, SASE's running out of things to do and vendors are running out of ways to differentiate themselves. And I think this is a good one. I mean, and SASE isn't going to help you with that internal segmentation if you are like, you know, um, a, a small satellite office of a, a health network where you've got, you know, medical devices, IoT devices that are supposed to be on separate segments uh, mm. by extending the fabric out. Presumably it's easier to bring those, you know, segmentation policies to that remote location this way uh, as opposed to having to do it by hand uh, for each site. Yeah. So he's hoping that Extreme can put it together. They've done very well. Their financial results are showing that they're getting some success with customers, as we talked about last week. Uh, one other note, uh, they also announced that their SD-WAN gateway can set up IPsec tunnels to AWS VPCs and Azure VNets without the need to host a virtual version of the SD-WAN software in the public cloud, which means it should make it less expensive for customers to access cloud resources because you don't have to have you know, an extra license uh, for all those SD-WAN instances for every VPC you want to tunnel into. Hmm. Also, I did note it that they only talked about one gig maximum performance, which isn't much. For their SD-WAN gateways, yeah, which is, yeah, yeah that's a little behind, I think. Yeah, Comcast was saying that they're now planning to go to 10 gig in their broadband, mm. which is a bit comical because Comcast says a lot of things <laughs> and delivers very little, but, uh, you know, one gig is, is not really where it should be. Yeah, mm. some work I think they need to do on that, and particularly if they're going to try to keep up in the SD-WAN arms race. Hmm. Yeah, not going to be critical because shipping shipping something now so that customers can engage makes sense, but I'd hope they've got something coming in that pipeline. Yeah, and I think at this point they're hoping to get customers who are already on their campus and data center fabrics mm. to look at them for SD-WAN with these integrations and then yep. they'll focus on you know getting new SD-WAN customers as they go. Yeah, I call this the fat lady sits on the, you know, when the fat lady sits on the bus seat, no one sits next to her because she's already taken up most of the I seat. See extreme saying to their existing customer base we've got an sd-wan you should start looking at us because it'll be ready to buy next year it's a tried and true model and you know cisco has done very that's well it, with it. Very yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> all right uh, moving on itential they provide network infrastructure automation and orchestration they have enhanced their integration with ServiceNow so that business units uh, that need network infrastructure services can request them via ServiceNow. i think it's aimed at it organizations who are trying to provide a more cloud-like service delivery model to their internal clients uh, so, well, ServiceNow is very popular for help desk. It's uh, sort of an ITIL-centric idea of, you know, operational control of your uh, IT infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Very, very popular in big organizations. It's almost become like a sales force of that that uh, industry. And what Itential saying is that we've produced a connector for you. You don't have to do anything. Or you can just take some code that you've already got running. And if you need to connect it to ServiceNow, we've done the hard work for you. You can do the minor thing. So... The way I look at Itential is that it's a low-code or a no-code product, provides you with a platform to bring your own code on top, and it sort of accelerates your code. Um, so instead of having to write all the code to go and write, you know, write to the ServiceNow API, they've already done all that work for you. And all you've got to do is say, well, I need to give it a ServiceNow these details, you know, like a job number and some sources mm-hmm. and some references and all that sort of stuff. And then they'll do, let you do the rest. And then you can write Python on top of Itential. You can bring your existing uh, Python Ansible stuff if you want and there you go. And it brings it all together. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, back in the early days of uh, private cloud when there was all this talk about service catalogs and internal service deployment and so on. It feels like that's what this is sort of uh, leaning toward uh, for trying to actually make that it happen. Is, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think this low code, no code idea where a lot of the code that you would you don't want to write it. You don't want to write the API to service now. You want to pay someone else yep. to do that so you can actually get closer to the pay rise situation. <laughs> right. <laughs> that the boss says, why haven't you actually done this yet? And you say, well, I've spent three months trying to work out how to write to the ServiceNow API. And you, well, couldn't you have just gone and bought it from somebody else? And then you just, <laughs> you know, like, and this is that same for Glueware and, you know, lots of these orchestration platforms, um, you know, the Cisco ones and all that right. sort of stuff. Much more effective, I think, for most organizations to pick one of these and, and go down that yeah, path. Sure. Uh, moving on, but sticking in the same area, Anuta Networks, they also play in the network automation orchestration space that they're more targeted at telco service providers and the very large enterprises. They've added an active assurance feature to their Anuta Atom orchestration software. So active assurance lets you run synthetic tests on demand from software agents that you deploy at key locations. So for example, if you want to test the performance of a link or a network segment to see if it's meeting SLAs, you fire off a set of tests, things like pings and trace routes, and you get real-time results on delay, latency, jitter, that kind of thing. Yeah, this is something that's been around for a while now, part of in the telco space, where they um, are very keen on being monitoring SLAs to customers now. So in the days uh, when, when we used to criticize telcos and say, like, you don't even know if your network's broken, that remains largely true, by the way. But in some cases, when they're building out these networks, they're starting to think, why am I not monitoring these things? Why can I not do tests to see if mm-hmm. it works? You know, like... I, if I send something to, if the customer rings in and says your thing is not working right, why, <laughs> you know, why am I not being told? You know, why do I not know? Why do I have no tools? So, this concept of active assurance is synthetic tests on demand, where you can say send this type of traffic from here to here to from this router to this router, and tell me if that circuit's playing up at a very high level. Because if it is, then you know you've got some other issue that to drill down. Right. I know that we've done shows with Juniper on this with Paragon Active Assurance and. Um, other platforms in this space. So not new as such, but now part of their uh, orchestration platform, which probably is quite unique, I think, in the terms of you know getting it into one platform and so customers don't have to go to another product. So. Yes, and that Paragon Juniper had is an acquisition from a company called NetRounds, which was doing active assurance. Uh, and I will say that Anuta and uh, Juniper are partners, so I'm curious how that plays out. But um, yeah, I think this is a small but essential addition to Anuja's portfolio, given that they're positioning themselves as a full lifecycle orchestration package, meaning they'll provision deploy, do changes and updates, and I think having active testing to ensure that you know a change you just made uh, is 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 performing as you expected is is a useful addition to the portfolio. Mm. Yeah, if, I think if you're using it, it's going to be good, right? <laughs> because is it going to make you buy I it? I don't know, but if, if you it. have it, you want yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, moving on, Cisco recently held its Cisco Live Europe event in Amsterdam. Uh, Greg, uh, you didn't see much in the way of product news coming out of the event. No, it looked a bit like Cisco sort of struggling to find things to talk about. They talked about some new uh, industrial switches in the IoT space. Look, to me, like Cisco was just replacing the chips and, and so forth as a result of supply chain problems. To me, there wasn't anything amazing about them, but they're all just hardened IoT-capable switch um, they had one announcement which was which took over 25 words just in the title to say, tell me nothing about it. Cisco Connects protects with new cloud tools across networking security and operations to provide greater visibility and control over networks. What do you think that means, Drew? It could mean anything. could mean anything. But apparently <laughs> it means three things. Uh, one is that Thousand Eyes has um, adopted Open Telemetry, which is a, an open standards body for sharing uh, intelligence between various platforms, a number of... Uh, software application tools agree that the open telemetry is a way to mm. do that. 
Uh, Cisco is one of those and, and all the other people there. They talked about some simplified IoT and then they talked about unified SaaS. Now, I would have thought that Cisco's SaaS portfolio was unified, but I quote, Cisco Plus Secure Connect now supports integration into Cisco SD-WAN fabrics using Viptela technology. So it sounds as if um, I wasn't able to dig into this because there's not a whole lot about what's actually happening uh-huh. here. But I think what's happened here is they're saying that Viptela has now got SASE capabilities, which strikes me as a little odd. I would have thought that would have been here all along because Cisco has been at the forefront of SD-WAN and maybe they're not very far ahead, as, as far ahead as I thought. Well, Cisco had a lot of the pieces of what you'd want in a, a SASE solution, um, but I think they were disparate pieces and so Cisco's got to take a lot of time to do that integration. Uh, so yeah, I can see why yeah. they're slowly stitching it together. Yeah, well, they launched, it says here in the blog post they launched Cisco Plus Secure Connect in June of last year. Uh, and now they're making it easier for you to have a successful SaaS implementation by uh, adding it to your Viptela SD-WAN. That, that feels like Cisco's quite a long way behind comparatively. If your SD-WAN product that's been out for five or six years now is only just getting sassy. Yeah, um, yeah. Has to be said, a lot of customers haven't deployed it, so maybe Cisco's tracking what customers are actually doing, or and they're happy to be fair way behind the market, and that's okay. I feel like SASE is the same like we were talking about DPUs earlier. A lot of talk about it, mm. probably not a lot of actual deployments. People still figuring it out, getting their arms around it, which gives the yep. vendors time to actually pull a yeah, legitimate think, product set together. Yeah, so in, in Cisco's case, because it's an incumbent for many of these organizations, it doesn't need to leave the market. <laughs> not at all, yes. Uh, yep. So, you know, coming up at a reasonably good time, but the announcement was fairly buried to, to make sense of that. So hopefully I've got that. If there's anything else I missed from the EMEA, please let us know. Um, we'd be happy to cover it, but it is quite difficult to decode from Cisco's uh, press releases. I, I apologize. Yeah, if you saw anything interesting, you can just have a pack of pushers.net slash FU, the FU's for follow-up, and we'd, we'd love to get uh, anything else that, that caught your attention. I think sometimes, you know, Cisco kind of saves up all its big stuff for the U.S. event anyway, so mm. it might have a different purpose rather than, you know, rolling out a tranche of yeah. product. They usually come up with something for each one, so I sort of have to lean in and try and decode read through all of the press releases and then follow the Twitter accounts and try and search out for some announcements. But the titles make it extremely difficult for um, <laughs> to decode where, where there's signal inside of it. Right. <laughs> anyway, it's the way Cisco's gone. They, they're trying a different approach towards their marketing, very long-worded and so forth. So, you know, that's fine. I will say I saw a lot of, uh, you know, photos and highlights and stuff from the event. It, 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 I have to say it looked appealing, although I think part of it is because I would just love a free trip to Amsterdam, um, but it, it seemed like a good time. <laughs> People seem to be having like a good yes, time. Yes, they did know? seem to be having a good time. <laughs> yeah, which is what conferences are all it, about. It it's it not about actually working. Right. It's just about having a, you know, a, a corporate holiday. A little bit it? of a boondoggle, but that's okay. We all, we all need one now. <laughs> all right, uh, moving on. Government agencies in the United States and the United Kingdom have sanctioned uh, seven men associated with the TrickBot malware gang. TrickBot's been widely used against Western organizations for ransomware and Trojan attacks. Uh, the seven people sanctioned are Russian, so the sanctions are limited, but it does give the U.S. government the power to seize any U.S. assets these men might have, and it puts foreign financial institutions on notice that they could suffer fines and sanctions if they provide financial services to the people on this list. Yeah, and the US, this is not just the US, Drew, it's also the mm-hmm. UK, so it's nominally a international. It's not necessarily a group of internationals. We don't see any of the EU authorities on this, but the US and the UK are both sanctioning the Russian uh, citizens here. And I think what's interesting here is that if you take the view that security doesn't matter and there are no consequences for failure, 
then you could also take the view that hacking is fun and profitable and there are no consequences if you live in the right country, uh -huh. like Russia, for yes. example, because <laughs> you're kind of like maybe you're able to buy your way out of any trouble in the local region and and uh, you're making money for the company, country and so forth. But uh, uh, law enforcement hasn't been able to catch hackers from Russia or aligned countries, but it can do occasionally when they venture out to locations like Cyprus or South America on uh -huh. holidays. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. But that's mostly as a law enforcement action, not as anything more serious. And I don't think we've seen governments really bother to do use their full powers to do things to stop hackers, like actually put personal sanctions and now banking sanctions here. And I would like to point out that the the Russian attack on Ukraine, the unprovoked Russian attack in Ukraine, has changed the way we look at this. And the governments are now riled up enough about attacking and, and security threats to actually say, and they're already using sanctions against the Russians. So it's fairly easy for them to add these people onto that list at this point in time. So I wonder if this is just a time and place thing or whether they'll continue to drew it. I also think, frankly, ransomware has been some of the most disruptive uh, cyber attacks we've seen probably since back, you know, to the, the old worm days when they mm -hmm. were, you know, a worm could propagate through the internet and take down businesses for multiple hours. So there are... Are, I think more there's more pressure on governments to try to do something about this, in particular because a lot of smaller yeah. government agencies are targets. Uh, th the thing is that you know law enforcement has to move slowly because they have to follow the rules and do things carefully and trying to get attribution on is this person actually affiliated with this gang it takes a long time. But I am I'm so I, I feel two ways about these sanctions. One, it's sort of like you're sanctioned, and they're like, yep, and we're here in Russia, so good luck. Uh, but it does put other you know, banking institutions and businesses yeah. on notice that if you're involved in laundering activities or whatever, then this could come back to bite you. So hopefully it does have some impact on maybe making it slightly less fun to become a, a ransomware millionaire. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think that I think it's also the politicians, to get them engaged in something, they only solve big problems. I think I've said this before, is that government solves big problems. It's not really able to help you with running a sewage pipe in your street, right? That's local government and you know state government and federal government. So for them to actually do this is actually significant because it's only seven people, really. But in this case, we're just lucky that there's already Russian sanctions being handed out anywhere, and I think they're just adding them to the list. And there's a, a process and a committee is already set up and all that sort of stuff. So hopefully this sets a path forward to perhaps do more about this. That's what I'm hoping for. Once it's been done, once the politicians do something once, then it becomes right, possible. Right, they've got a process again. and mechanisms in place to, to mm -hmm. keep it going, yeah. Yep. All right, links in the show notes, including a very detailed write-up uh, from uh, Brian Krebs, if you want to check that out. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. is experiencing one of the tightest labor markets in recent history. More layoffs are hitting the tech sector with companies like Zoom, Dell, and Yahoo firing workers. Uh, you may remember last week we talked about Pat Gelsinger taking a 25% pay cut after terrible financial results. Now, Zoom CEO Eric Yuan is upping the ante. He's reportedly going to take a 98% pay cut and forego his 2023 bonus at the same time as Zoom is laying off employees. Well, that's serious, right? I mean, <laughs> keep in mind that the guys made billions as Zoom has gone from relative obscurity yes. uh, during the pandemic to something enormous. So he's not giving up everything. Right. Yeah? But, you know, compared to Bat Gelsinger, who said, I'm taking a 25% pay cut, but and he doesn't, you know, salary is only a small fraction of his overall, you know, package. He's also going, he's foregoing his bonus. So, you know, props to him. But I, I think the trick here is that... Um, the layoffs have continued this week, and now it's into second gear of companies. I think it's two hundred and seventy thousand layoffs in the tech mm -hmm. industry now. Is what they sort of was what I saw, but was, I've seen now that several analysts are starting to get to the point that CEOs and executives have made huge mistakes in overhiring, and the CEOs and executives are happily admitting, "Oh yes, it's definitely our fault, and now we're making it right." But a certain number of analysts are now 
pointing out that neither the CEO of the executives are taking any pain here and nor are the shareholders. So all of the pain is being put onto the workers. And, you know, these we, we talked before about how CEOs and executives have brands and their brands are associated with their career path and they're very careful not to damage their mm-hmm. brand. So they'll admit to being a big mistake, but then they all get together and clap each other on the back and say, oh, it's a good experience and we've learned a lot in our failure and we won't, you know, and, and next time, you know, we'll know what to do and we'll get it. But they won't, of course, because this is just not how it works. So I think that really it's only the tech sector that's taking layoffs now. It's really limited. The general economy is actually fine. There's really no reason for these companies to take off losses, but at the same time, the shareholders and the executives are getting all scot-free, and we're starting to see people will agitate around that. And I posted an article in the show notes from Ed Zitron, and he is uh, quite vitriolic about the whole issue. And I think I've seen articles on Bloomberg and on Business Insider saying the same sorts of things, saying, like, you know, how do the executives get off scot-free here? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons companies have shareholders is that shareholders are supposed to take uh, the company uh, directors uh, to task when they fail, uh, and that typically doesn't happen uh, for a variety of reasons that I won't go into, but uh, I do... So on the one hand, it's great that Eric Yuan is upping the ante by going to 98%. Uh, I don't know if that's Mm. his total compensation or just base salary, because again, like Pat Gelsinger, if it's just his base salary, that's not really a hit, but at least the number is higher and not taking a bonus is an acknowledgement that yes, I do bear some responsibility. I am suffering a tiny, tiny bit of financial pain. So, okay, let's, I'm glad the floor, the floor is now 98% tech executives. That's, that's what we're talking about now. No more 25%. Yeah. Uh, so that's good. Uh, on the other hand though, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. Things are out of whack. Uh, executives, if they're being given this uh, stupendous amount of compensation, uh, pres- presumably because they're providing so much value. If they are not, then that compensation be- should be clawed back. Yeah, but nobody's suffering. Everybody's getting around saying like, you know, it's that like uh, Silicon Valley thing where, you know, oh, I've failed. I've done, I've done five startups and they've all failed. Oh, you must be so talented. You must be so ready for the next <laughs> it's one. another <laughs> round of investment. Like, what? Yes. <laughs> you sure you're not just a loser, you know? Oh, well, right. anyway, what do I know? I'm just a... <sighs> Grumpy podcaster. Yeah, I've, I've climbed down off my soapbox now, and there's links in the show notes if you yeah, want to read up yep. on it. Uh, Amazon's planning to use natural gas fuel cells to generate electricity locally for a handful of data centers in the U.S. state of Oregon. This is according to a story in the Register. Apparently, Amazon's having trouble getting enough electricity from local utilities, so it's looking for options to generate power on site. Yeah, amusing, isn't it? Uh, keep in mind that this is in the context of, I think it was uh, three or four months ago, we talked about Ireland. Uh, the Irish government was cancelling 20 data centre projects because they just don't have the generating capacity and they don't see the value in building the generating capacity to support those data centres. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that one? Yep. And um, I I think that uh, electricity companies have sort of realised that selling electricity to retail markets is more profitable than selling it to a US megatech who demands, you know, really tight margins and don't want much. And so why would I go and build it, take 30 years to build a power plant when they want it in five years? And, and, and uh, So I think we're going to see a lot more of these clouds get into creating their own power generation to do this. Um, and they're going to be stuck because the only way to do this very quickly is either to build solar farms, uh, natural gas generation, whether they're using fuel cells or whether they're using natural gas generators, mm-hmm. doesn't really much difference. And... Um, you know, uh, they're not going to take the time to go through a 10-year cycle to build a hydro plant or to and to operate a hydro plant, which will actually generate, you know, 300 to 500 megawatts of power, which is what you normally look at. These are talking about building 10 megawatts or 50 megawatts of, of power generation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this is going to be interesting because that's subscale electricity generation. That's not the whole premise around clouds is that you're actually making it operating at scale. And therefore, if you're running 100,000 computers in a data center, that's more efficient than running 20. Well, if you've got to run your own, generate your own electricity as a custom option, then all of a sudden clouds don't look very efficient, if you know what I'm saying. Well, scale, I mean, things don't scale magically yeah. forever. Uh, we do run into limitations, and power is one of those limitations. And uh, I assume whatever costs Amazon is going to bear for having to start generating mm-hmm. its own power will be passed along to consumers. Yeah. Now, just one thing here. Um, uh, I made um, some commentary in two places about this, and people came back to me and said, oh, what about SMR, uh, which is small modular nuclear reactors? And these are supposed to be very small they sort of put out sort of 50 to 100 megawatts and they're, everybody's very excited about them. They are, I assure you, 10 to 20 years ago. 10 would be incredibly optimistic, but it's more like 20. Um, we've been talking about them for a while, but you're still talking about billions of dollars of design and testing to make them realistic, even though we've been talking about them for a long time. And they're not actually that small. They need uh, about four football fields in size mm-hmm. for the actual building, and they need to be dug into bedrock formations. So high, like you can't just put them anywhere you want. Um, and as a result, they're going to be very time-consuming to build. You've got to dig these very holes. You've got long planning cycles. It's not like just put a generator on the back of the truck. It's much cheaper than a 25-year process for building a full-size nuclear reactor. <laughs> but <laughs> We're not building a lot of those <laughs> either, so like, I'm not sure why smaller yeah. is going to... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you need a data center by the end of the year or by the end of next year, you are not going to be relying on SMRs for at least a decade, probably two. Um, and... Is it possible that AWS and Asia will suddenly invest in the development of small modular reactors? Well, you know, they've done a lot of things. Maybe it is. But right now, I know that here in the UK, the company, I think it's Boeing, um, or one of the one of the major military industrials has just kicked off a full-time project for oh. this. So they've done preliminary work, but the actual process of taking it to the next stage has only just started. So yeah, don't be too confident that SMR is a solution. So one of the things the article mentioned about problems with bringing power to these sites is there are, you know, People who own property in the area don't want to see a giant transmission tower going up mm. uh, in their backyard or near their backyard. I can imagine the arguments you would get about, we're mm. also going to build a nuclear reactor mm. uh, a couple couple towns over. What? No, <laughs> not going to happen. That's what I mean. Yeah, they're, yeah they're exactly. Really safe. Aside from the technical issues, yeah. Yeah, but a lot of people are just knee-jerk reactions around nuclear, but yeah. All right, a couple more stories before we wrap. Uh, Fortinet reported its Q4 and full year results for the quarter. The company did $1.28 billion in revenue, up 33% over last year, and had net income of $313.8 million. And for the full year, the company had revenues of $4.42 billion, up 32%, uh, and net income of $857 million. So the result was that the stock jumped from $53 to about $60 as a result of that because Fortinet came in ahead of what consensus was. I guess two reactions from analysts. One is that Fortinet's doing too well, and while others see it as a sign that cybersecurity remains buoyant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> two sides of a coin, you know. Analysts are hard to please. You can't win. <laughs> uh, but it also, yeah, <laughs> it also should be noted that Fortinet has a reputation for exceeding guidance by a fair amount, unlike Cisco, which always, you know, exceeds it by one mm-hmm. cent, mm-hmm. you know, or ten million. Always seems to come in just at the right number to please, just to be just a bit above, not behind. Um, Fortinet has a reputation for continuously exceeding the guidance for a fair amount, and some people see that as like. Uh, either they're padding the numbers or they're doing so well that their growth is beyond what they can reasonably predict. And and really, you know, it's hard to know which. So there you go. Yeah. And uh, in terms of forecasting, the company's forecasting continued growth for the first, first quarter of the new fiscal year and for fiscal year 2023 overall. So sunny days ahead, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. They're growing quite well. 
and still a small company though. So revenues of four point four billion is very exciting, like for this for the full year. Keep in mind that Cisco sells you know, 50, 52 billion in a year. So not they're not directly comparable, but just to sort of get you a sense of right. scale. Uh, last but not least, we're talking about AMD. Um, they had their own Q4 and full year 2022 results. Compared to how Intel did recently, things are a little bit sunnier at AMD. For the quarter, AMD had revenues of $5.6 billion and net income of $21 million with an operating loss of $149 million. For the full year, the company had revenues of $23.6 billion, up 40%, 44% year over year, and net income of $1.3 billion, which was down 58% year over year. So ups and downs. Ups and downs, and in you know, obviously AMD is now out of the darkness and back into the mm-hmm. light and beloved by the markets, <laughs> uh, which is a tough one. But I think the main thing here is AMD's data center revenue, uh, because AMD has got their fi- like, like latest generation chip in the market shipping today, and Intel has only just announced mm-hmm. theirs, and it won't ship for another six to twelve months in in volume, and so AMD's got this product that companies want now. And they're able to ship large volumes of it. So they're going to be successful as they've beaten Intel to market. And there are questions as to whether Intel can ship the new product in volume. And that won't help uh, customers, you know, wait for Intel. They'll wait until Intel's actually got the product rather than get too far ahead of the curve. And then AMD would continue to do well. So, you know, right place, right time, moving into market faster than their competitors. So reasons to be positive. Yeah. So for the fourth quarter, their data center revenue was 42% higher than it was last year, 1.7 billion in revenue for the quarter just for that sector. Uh, Although, of course, like all the other chip makers, its client business is down uh, by half uh, year over year in Q4. So again, ups and downs for AMD. Yeah, the consumer market shrinking rapidly. People bought a lot of computers in that uh, pandemic period, and the general consensus appears to be it'll be another two years before people start to re a refresh. Uh, refresh. Yeah. yeah, it's a five year cycle around home laptops, is what they're saying. Doesn't sound right to me, but then I'm a nerd. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> Yeah, what do I know? Exactly. Yeah. Right, that wraps up the news. Uh, we do have a Tech Bytes with Nokia. If you want to hear about their event handler, it's a new automation feature in their SR Linux network OS that lets you run scripts to fix problems when an event occurs. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk about a new automation feature in Nokia's SR Linux network OS that lets you automatically run scripts to fix problems when an event occurs. Nokia is our sponsor. Our guest is Roman Doden. He is product line manager at Nokia. Uh, Roman, welcome to the podcast. And can you just, before we start diving into the new feature, give us a quick overview of SR Linux and some of the key value propositions? Sure. Back in 2020, Nokia released data center-focused network operating system that we call SR Linux. And because we had like a clean slate in front of us, we started to do things right, if I may say so. For example, we started with modular architecture instead of traditional monolithic approach. And we also uh, had a, an API-first vision that we kind of dragged along through through the design process. For example, every interface that Azure Linux has uses the common API layer that is unified and shared across all the northbound and southbound interfaces. And of course, we also had a key focus on extensibility and programmability. Features like NDK, our NetOps development kit, programmable CLI, fully end coverage, some of those things we we, dis- we discussed with you uh, at Network Break and TechBytes. And that all was coupled with leveraging uh, a routing pedigree from our bigger brother, Nokia SRS operating system that powers largest mm-hmm. ISP networks. Mm. So the the messaging that I got when we did those shows with you before, we've done a few shows on this, is that uh, SR Linux is a, a Linux-based operating system for networking, so a NOS, if you like, 
come the apps on there, like the routing and, and all the services that you expect, the BGP stacks and the MPLS and all that, is all comes from the heritage that Nokia brings in its telco land. And so it's got a high degree of confidence. You've actually sold quite a lot of it as well. I was looking at your financial results. So the move to SR Linux and this API first design idea has actually been met with some success. But what we wanted to talk today about is this SR Linux has a new automation framework. Now we know you've got lots of automation in here already, very API driven. You've got Fabric System Services, which is a controller for the data center. The same applies to the WAN and the optical networks as well. But we just wanted to focus on this feature, which is this automation framework. So just preview that for us, Romain. Yeah, sure. So as you as you just said, we kind of have a very extensible and programmable system. And this new framework that we called Event Handler falls nicely into the same paradigm of extensibility. What Event Handler enables uh, us to do is that you can react to a specific system events that occur in SR Linux using programmable logic to define the actions that you would like to be taken in response to those events. Like if I put it in a simple words, you can write some scripts that are invoked when specific events occur. For example, when an operation, uh, when an interface goes operationally down or BGP state changes to some other state rather than established. Okay, so when a problem occurs that is detected, I can have a, a script that I've written just trigger to help me fix the event? Yeah, you can think about uh, fixing events where you can change the configuration or state of your system. And that way you will be able to either rem remedy the action or you can enhance the way your operating system behaves, such as that you have some programmable logic that your business case requires you to have. Okay, and this is based on scripts that I'm writing for my own environment. It's not something that Nikki is going to provide mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, exactly. So we thought that it would make, it would make a lot of sense to give users the framework for them to decide how they want to react to specific events. So we do not want to force your hand and say, this is the only way you need to, you know, um, monitor your links and react to the state changes of operate of, uh, of interfaces, but mm. rather you have control over how you want to do that. Mm. I, I was thinking about where I would use this. And um, one, uh, one situation where I was remembering was years ago, um, I had an uplink to a telco and every now and then it would stop. And then whenever we shut down the interface physically, like logged in and shut it down and then opened it back up, it would start working again. Is this is that a viable use case here? You could literally write a script that would do that automatically absolutely. when it detects? Yeah. Mm. yeah, absolutely. You have like a full control what you want to achieve with the, like what your action would be yeah. for a specific reaction that you read from the system. Mm. And um, you can either trigger the configuration changes or you can invoke some operational commands on the system as, as a reaction to an event, or you can even augment your Yank tree if you want, and we can discuss it further down the road. Mm -hmm. And another use case that um, I saw being promoted was in a ECMP spine. This is really interesting. So I'm going to try and explain it. So just bear with me. In, you know, when you've got a leaf spine, you've got a client attached to two leaves, and then the leaves are connected up to the spine. But if you lose one of the leaves completely, but the the client interface is still up, but the uplinks to the to the to the core are gone. Then traffic will still be forwarded to the leaf and end up, you know, and and the client would be load balancing. And in that case, you can say if I've got no connection to the to the ECMP spine or the CLOS spine, I want to shut down the client facing port. Now that's very useful for a sort of an automated ECMP VPN eVPN VXLAN type setup because if the physical ports 
up going or the routes to the upper hop going aren't there. You want to shut down that interface to the client because the client doesn't know that one of the switches is effectively no longer forwarding frames. Yeah, absolutely. You summed it up rather nicely. If I would just, you know, provide a few more details on that one. This this use case is often called operational groups. And what it does is that it kind of creates a fate sharing between the uplink interfaces on a switch and the downlink interfaces, which are connected to the mm-hmm. to the servers typically, right? And yeah. as you as you just described, the black holing can occur when one of the uplinks or two of the uplinks or many of the uplinks on one leaves uh, go down, the client has no idea so that such event happens. So mm-hmm. it starts, it continues to use the uh, one of the lags in the LECP group and effectively traffic gets black holed on the leaf that doesn't have any mm-hmm. more uplinks. Sounds and like interface tracking from years gone by, but... Exactly, more, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we want but I'm, to- I- I'm writing a script to do this. I'm creating an operational group. It's a bit more flexible because I can also do it with routes. You know, it could be that if I'm not receiving any routes from the upstream spines. I should take the take these take that interface down, for example. Yeah, absolutely correct. So we wanted mm. to give users control on what they want to monitor and what would the action be, rather than saying that you only can monitor operational states of the uplinks. You mm. can really subscribe or or get the information from BGP uh, peerings, for example and do some smart things like back pressure and and um, exponential back off when you want to uh, put your downlink not as fast as 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 the event occurs but mm-hmm. has some you know timing in place so with that scripts you will be able to define your own logic the best it fits your particular environment and business goals and assuming in most cases people would be thinking that an SDN controller of some sort would be handling this it would say oh look i can see that this, but it implies an out-of-band network that the controller is either on-site connecting to all of these devices to see or to note this problem. This is sort of a different sort of a thing. There are specific times when these ECMP fabrics don't have an SDN controller locally or they're a more comprehensive use cases to say in a, in a WAN routing situation or in a telco backbone or a corporate backbone, that sort of thing. It's far more flexible. Yes, yeah, true. And also sometimes I hear a question like, why would I want to run those local scripts if I have the SDN controller. But for example, uh, one of the things that immediately comes to mind that the local action gets executed faster than a central controller would be able to read the data out and program it, especially mm. considering that not everybody has fast management interfaces such as GRC, and Now I'm thinking example. storage network. Uh, or, yeah. You know, or an 800 gig or 1.2 terabit link. But, the, you know, if it takes you 30 seconds to shut it down, you've actually lost a significant amount of traffic. Yeah, for the operational group use cases, yeah. the speed of reaction is critical. So you want to be as fast as possible. And then a, an action that is taken locally will be inherently faster, right? So mm. is there some kind of element on each switch watching for events so that it can then uh, work through this process to kick off a script and, and fix the problem? Yeah, as we typically have in SR Linux, every every piece of SR Linux is a separate process. and mm-hmm. Event Handler has its own manager called Event Manager. That is the manager that you configure with instances that can be uh, ca- that can watch over the paths that you want them to watch. So you say, if I need to watch these particular uplinks and their operational state, you just configure your Event Handler instance and say, I want to monitor these particular links. And yes, this Event Manager will then subscribe to those events and will trigger your script 
once any of the uplink state changes. Okay, so you sort of anticipated my next question. It sounds like you're trying to make this a very lightweight kind of utility as opposed to I'm watching every single event on every single switch and flooding you with telemetry and alerts and alarms. You're saying you program event manager to look for specific things and if action happens, take Y uh, you know, result. Yeah, true. You don't want to have a subscription that spans your entire state data store because that would be very taxing on any switch, right? Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how many cores and RAM you have. So the more precise you are in your uh, particular paths that you want to monitor, the less burden your switch will have when it manages all those subscriptions. So for the operational use case, operational group use case, you subscribe to uplinks and their operational state, or you wanna, uh, if you want to change it to BGP peering state, you subscribe to BGP peering state, and then only this information will be fed to your script and it will operate on the data received from event manager. Now, when a script needs to be kicked off, is uh, the switch uh, pulling it from some kind of repository or do I sort of preload the scripts to, to follow a process? We have two stage approach here. So first we offer some scripts that are written by Nokia itself. And these are, for example, operational uh, group use cases, something that is standard and everybody needs it. So we ship it with with Astro Linux NOS mm. itself. And you can find them on in our documentation and on, on disk, of course. But if you wanted to deploy your own scripts, you just create them and you move them to a predefined directory on the switch so that event manager can uh, search for them. And then you just say, uh, I use this path on my network operating system to call this particular script and event manager will take this file and parse it and uh, interpret and execute. Okay. And is the idea here to have this all happen automatically, or do I want this to run through a workflow where, you know, it's either Slack Ops or a ticket gets open so I can see what's happening, or do you anticipate customers just going to let this uh, event handler run kind of almost in the background, kicking off scripts and fixing problems? Yeah, so event handler, event handler runs scripts every time when there is a change on any of the paths that is under their monitoring control. So whenever anything changes, Event Handler automatically kicks off a script. And then the logic that you bake in your script takes an action, or it can take no action if there is nothing to do with the data that it receives, right? Mm -hmm. So you as an operator, you decide what do you want to do with the data that you receive, because you are the only one who knows what to do with the data. And then, of course, the action can be something like notify somebody on a Slack channel or on Discord channel or send an SMS. So you can you can have an actions like that as well. Okay, so the event can be logged somewhere else as well, so I can sort of like, oh, this happened, and yes, everything worked out okay. Yeah. So uh, as far as the action actions go, you have a plethora of opportunities here. So you can change configuration. For example, you may say, like, if the if my BGP peering went down, I want to shut down something on my NOS, and of course, it can be anything that. That, that exists in Astro Linux because we have a fully Yang modeled data store, both for configuration and state. So you can change configuration. You can also change operational state of the ports. That is, again, uh, in line with the operational group use case. So you can kind of ephemerally put operational, operational state of, of the interface down or up, depends on the use case. And you can also call some scripts that exist on the nodes. And these are not event handler scripts, but any scripts that you have. It can be a bash script that calls a program. It can be a logging 
uh, utility of Linux to create a syslog message, for example. So anything you can run on Linux, you can invoke as an action of the event handler. And this is one of the things about a Linux-based NOS is that you've got a lot more of this state and configuration. Like if anybody's listening, they're sort of thinking, you know, of the sort of old ways of run it, building a NOS not based on a modern architecture. This is something that's enabled by the fact that this is a relatively new development. The whole network operating system is a ground-up change that's got this capability to do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've been doing network engineering for quite a while, and I remember working on the traditional, uh, let's say, uh, network operating systems, and I wish I had all the yeah. AWKs, yeah. grabs, and SADs of the world you know, to, to make my operational life easier. And when you run things on, on the Linux, these tools come come free to you. So that's really a blessing. Yeah. I can remember trying to do this in Perl with SNMP and TCL back in the day. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is just an API, you know, you write a script on board. You don't even have to pull any APIs. You almost define it in the CLI from what I can see. So I was looking at the uh, learn.srlinux.dev website and it's showing you how to, to do this in a lab. And as we talked about in other uh, shows, you can actually build all of this into a test lab on a machine just using containers. You can download the containers and set it up in a sort of like a Kubernetes-style environment and play with all of this if you want to find out how it works. Exactly. We we got a lot of good mileage out of this approach because I think mm. you learn best when there is a practical lab that you can get your hands on, right? And learn mm. by doing is something that I love very much and I think it kind of caters to a lot of engineers. Okay, so we're getting toward the end of our time here, but uh, Roma, very quickly, we, we touched on a couple of use cases. Are there other things I can do with Event Handler? Yeah, so we spoke about the operational group use case, and there are different variants, variations uh, for it. Uh, one, one thing that I would like to mention as well is that you can also do some augmented configuration. For example, you can automatically react to LLDP state changes on the box and configure the interface descriptions based on the LDP neighbor information and kind of have, you know, auto-configurable descriptions for your neighbors, which is quite cool. And one of the things that we recently added to, or still working on adding to Event Handler is being able to augment your Yang model. And this opens a lot of opportunities for operators to do stuff like on-box alerting when you have uh, a thresholds that you can cross and your, your script will create a Yang leaf and augment your young state with the alarm that you want to 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 present to a, a network management system for example you can also do the same with performance monitoring and something like change history where you can for example record the state changes of interfaces going up and down or bgp states going up and down and that can really simplify the uh, long running debugging process because you will have the history captured in your young mm. state I think these these are one of the interesting use cases that operators can explore. All right. Well, we'll have uh, links in the show notes for folks if they want to dig into this. Uh, but Roman, before we go, if there's a simple website folks could uh, grab if they want to start checking this out, where would they go? Yeah, I recommend everybody to check out learn.srlinux.dev. That is our collection of tutorials and labs explaining all the cool stuff about SR Linux, and you will find operational group use case explained here as well. 
Okay, that's learn.srlinux.dev. We'll also have other links in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Roman, for explaining Event Handler, and thanks to Nakia for being a sponsor. Uh, if you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.